Thank you so much. My name is Daniel Nayeri. Um, I'm an author, I'm a filmmaker, I'm an editor. Uh, I'm basically a, a storyteller by trade, and I, I would love to do this extemporaneously. I should begin. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as cool as your chaplain, that is a fact. Uh, I also, my, my pastor in New York is uh, Tim Keller. He's like the most educated on all this topic and uh, anything related to do with chapel, and he speaks extemporaneously, so I felt like <clears throat> I should be able to pull this off. Uh, but I, I did, I can't. Uh, so you'll, I'm, what I offer instead for you is the opportunity to, to be gracious and forgive uh, the fact that I'm going to be reading from my notes. Um, yeah, I'm also not a pastor. I have never spoken at a chapel before. Um, I have to tell you, I think the magnitude of the importance, um, the, sort of the necessity for precise language in a setting like this, uh, not to mention the clarity of thought, I will, uh, I will not be changing my day job anytime soon. I, f I feel sort of woefully inadequate. Um, in fact, one of the elements we'll discuss is like how deeply unqualified I am to speak at a chapel. Uh, this, is, this is holy ground, after all, um, which we can tell, because there are these shoes here, and I assume <laughs> that means it's either holy ground or it's a threat to my person. Like, these are the last five speakers that y'all <laughs> bumped off. Well, that, that guy went from his notes, yeah, so, uh, no, but I, I am not the kind of writer whose self-aggrandizing reaches the heights of believing that my, my work is holy or sacred. Stories can point to the sacred, certainly, um, but they can also be profane, and quite often are. Um, a chapel sermon, however, must be kept sacred. Um, every sentence has to be weighed against the cosmic balance. Is this accurate? Is it true? Heaven forbid I tell a joke and you have to ask yourself, is it funny, before you laugh. No joke can survive that sort of scrutiny. Um, so chapel is very much a new one for me. I am just a storyteller. I'll focus there. Um, I was born in Iran, uh, but my mother fell afoul of the secret police, and so we had to escape. Uh, we lived in various places as refugees until we finally found asylum in the United States. That's, that's what it says in my bio, if you read it on the back of any of my books. And that's basically the whole story, right? If we stay at that level, this level of uh, small talk and, and back of the jacket copy, it's the basic headline. Um, it's also the level I might use at a party if I just want to stand by the food table and mainline all the shrimp. And you come up and you say, hey, where are you from? And I say, well, uh, I'm from Iran, but we had to escape, et cetera, et cetera. How about you? Do you like Nintendo? Which is... <laughs> And then we, the conversation turns, we start talking about Chrono Trigger, and I'm comfortable again. And, um, and then, of course, we talk about you, maybe you're into mountain biking, that's cool, and, um, and that's it. We sort of stay at that level, neither of us really knows one much uh, about the other. It's a vague outline of the events of our lives. And everyone has one, right? Mine's no more or less special than any of yours. Uh, in fact, I'd love to hear each of yours uh, someday. But today, you know, I'm here to talk to you about the, the actual story. What, what makes a story? Why do we even have them? And what is it about a story that makes it so powerful? So if I was in, in my church in, in New York, Tim Keller, famous for a three-point sermon, he'd say, uh, we're going to talk about the parts of a story, the purpose of a story, and the power of a story. <laughs> then he'd repeat it, and he'd start. He's, it's great. It's really good. You should, you should take a listen to some of those. Um, but let's begin. What makes a story? Like, what are the parts of a story? So if we, if we look at it uh, from, you know, the textbook answer, 
A story is just an accounting of a series of events. They can be real or imaginary, but that's it. It's a series of events. Um, that doesn't seem particularly powerful or complicated, right? In fact, uh, if this is all stories are, then they're not particularly valuable beyond giving us the news of the world. Um, in fact, they're not even that helpful, right? If, if all you do is read the headlines of the world, then you've probably been grossly misinformed about their nuances. So, um, so let me give you my story as a headline. It's actually pretty straightforward. It's once upon a time, there was a boy in Iran, uh, but he left Iran, traveled around the world, and finally came to America, where he discovered the wonders of Nintendo. Do you like Nintendo? Me too. Uh, and that's the end. See, uh, it's not very powerful. It's not very complicated. As a story, uh, it's just a matter of sequential events. And that's all it'll ever be. It's a, it's a plot graph. I imagine a lot of you have probably studied in, in any of your craft courses, Freytag's Pyramid, right? It's a really uh, simple way to plot a series of events. It begins at the moment of exposition. That's where a lot of stories begin. And you're supposed to begin to deliver the backstory of the main character you meet and what they want. What is it that's getting them up and out of bed? And then uh, you get the rising complications of what's standing in the way of what they want. And then you get the climax. Uh, at best, it gives you the thrill of watching a character desire something. And at the climax, they either lose that uh, or receive their desire. And, and there you go. You have the denouement. Once upon a time, there was a boy who wanted nothing more in this world than to be a shepherd like his grandfather. But when his family is torn apart and separated across the planet, he's left wondering if his patchwork memories of the man will be enough to guide him to be like the grandfather he admired. There you go, okay, so exposition, little Persian boy. Motivation, he wants to be a shepherd, like his grandpa. Rising action is them getting separated. Question at the climax, will the scraps of his memories be enough for him to follow in his grandfather's footsteps? And as a story, it's a little better than the headline, right? Uh, at least it has the beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, it has a climax, and Unlike the simple headline before, um, we get all the parts, but still, it's just an external series of events. Um, and so, surely there has to be more to a story than that. Maybe some of you at this point have heard about the hero's journey, right? It's sort of a, a mainstay of narratology, the study of narratives and storytelling. Um, the mid-20th century, you know, structuralists got excited about trying to map uh, storytelling as a, as a, as a structure and many of them started to try to reduce them into what you might call templates or types, structures. Um, a gentleman by the name of Vladimir Prop famously said that all stories fit into 31 plots. Um, you know, Joseph Campbell sort of further distilled it down to, to one, and of course we know that as, uh, as the hero's journey. Um, and not only did he chart sort of the exterior events of the story, he wanted to see the interior growth of the main character. Okay, so the character begins in their zone of comfort or home, and they get a call to adventure that at first they refuse, maybe because they're afraid. But this adventure leads them to the threshold of the unknown, a new place where they must grow and learn in order to overcome the challenges and return home. Already, you know, we can imagine and we have, there are endless uh, YouTube videos of, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all these things sort of charted as the hero's journey. And if we follow that graph to tell my story, it might read like this. Once upon a time, a woman named Seema lived what seemed like a charmed life in Isfahan, Iran, where she became a doctor, married, and had two children. 
As a matter of faith and conscience, she converted from Islam to Christianity, which is a capital crime in the theocracy of Iran, which means she'd be put to death if she was caught. But she refused to leave her home. And so one day, as she was shopping for groceries, she was kidnapped by the secret police, interrogated, and given the choice to renounce her new faith or be killed. That was her wake-up call. She had to leave uh, her home country with her two kids. And so began her journey across the world to Oklahoma, where life was nearly the opposite of what it was in Isfahan. Though she had been a renowned doctor, now she was poor and worked in a factory. Where she had her family, now she was all alone. Where she spoke the language, now she was struggling just to speak. Can you see that we're at the part where the hero is in the underworld, right? In the land of opposites, in the death part. And she must find the strength to see herself out of it. We're only halfway through, and already you know more about me and my story than any of the other structures. Namely, I wasn't really the hero. My mother was. She was the one who thrust herself out into the unknown. And though I could probably tell my story so that the spotlight is on me the whole time, I don't think that would be a true accounting of what happened. The truth is that my childhood was one where I saw an incredibly courageous mother do some very heroic things. And I like telling it this way. Uh, it subverts expectations, first of all. I wasn't the strong protagonist of my story making active choices. I was a little kid watching the chaos and the danger around me, wondering who I could possibly count on. The theme that maybe we are not the heroes, uh, even of our own stories, is one that resonates with me. Maybe it does with you. It is, after all, the message of the gospel. All right, we've gotten a little more about what makes a story, right? But I think we can push this even a little further. Because I can tell you, you could write a perfectly crafted hero's journey, following the steps precisely, and we might still not have a story that people would care about at all. The reason is that the internal growth uh, of a journey, I'm sorry, of a hero, and uh, told in a coherent sequence of external events uh, will work, but it's still missing its heart. Have you noticed, for example, I haven't really introduced you to the characters. Well, here they are. They're my mom and my dad, right? She loves flowers and gardening, and for years, when we were refugees, she would talk wistfully about her wall of roses back in Isfahan. I would always wonder, who was watering them now? My father was a dentist in the city, but never lost his love of the countryside where he grew up, in Ardistan. That was where my grandfather was a shepherd and a farmer. We loved my grandfather's orchards. We would run around picking fruits and nuts on the weekends. My father couldn't leave when we left Iran. I wondered sometimes what he looked like wandering in those rows of trees all by himself. Or maybe he wasn't alone. Maybe some other kids kept him company. The heart of a story is never going to be as simple as the basic events in it. It is the sound of longing you perceive from the characters, which may resonate with your own somehow, so that a kid from Iran with an odd life that led him from refugee camps to Oklahoma, who has a weird obsession with Nintendo and who doesn't speak English very well at all, would actually have something to share with you beyond information, beyond the headline, beyond even the series of events. As you read his words, you share each other's company. In the parlor of your mind, he might sit as a guest and then as a friend because you've managed to sympathize with his humanity. This is the first and most powerful reason for stories. Now that we know what they are, remember, we're working together today to ask ourselves what makes a story. We established it is a series of events, 
an internal journey of a character, and a heartfelt expression of longing. And so now we can ask the next question, why do we have stories? And after that, what power do they have? Which is to say, what should we do with them? But first, the second question, why do we have stories? I will tell you now, this is the quickest one to answer. We have stories in order to stave off our cosmic loneliness. When we got to the United States, we got a dog. Uh, the dog's name was Angel, and she was a homeless, homeless puppy uh, once, and uh, we adopted her. She became my friend. She was a nervous wreck of a dog. Uh, she, she was always terrified, and if anyone ever rang our doorbell, she would immediately pee and defecate all over the floor. I, not kidding, I spent a decade uh, cleaning up after this dog. She stained every carpet in our house, but I didn't mind. I knew her story. She was scared. She understood that doorbells can bring good news or bad news, and she had experienced a little too much of the latter. I knew Angel's story, and I related to it. You see, a story can make us see the humanity in a frazzled, stinky dog that soaked <clears throat> all of our carpets twice a day in urine. Isn't that amazing? We have them in order to share some piece of this life with those around us and to feel ourselves in the company of people or animals that we grow to love as a result of their stories. Notice, by the way, that our newfound love for them does not erase the inconvenience of their existence. In fact, it increases them because we now share their burdens. Love asks us to clean up after one another, to forgive each other our smelliness. This is the challenging work of love, and it is extremely difficult. But I am telling you, there is no other reason to exist on this planet. That is what we have. We have the stories to share. We do it in order to find and love one another. That is why we have them. A story can make friends out of our enemies. It can make friends out of even less than our enemies. But the creatures that disgust us, the ones that need us to clean them up. This is important to remember because it, it is what makes stories so daggum powerful. We can make friends out of our enemies, and that is the only way to make fewer enemies in this world. But here is something very important to remember about power. Power, no matter whether it's a knife in your hand or a story in your heart, power can always be used to heal or to harm. It can always do both. And honestly, the healing is more difficult. Creating is much harder than destroying. It takes your imagination, your toil, your practice, your whole heart. And destroying only takes a word sometimes. A knife can be used to serve you a meal or to cut you open. It takes far less time to cut than to make a meal. A story can make friends of your enemies, sure. But it is extremely difficult. You have to give it your time and your attention. You have to listen. After all, the first stories you tell, the closest ones to your heart, the ones that you repeat the most often are about you. And those stories can heal the wounds of your heart or they can cut you more and more until you are an enemy of yourself. Here, I will pause to encourage you to listen when you tell yourself a story. Try to stand outside of yourself for a moment and listen to how the storyteller is treating you. Would you ever let someone tell that story about a friend or someone else that you loved? I'm not asking you to always be kind to yourself. Sometimes you might need a good kicking in order to change the behaviors that are harming you. But at the very least, be watchful of those stories you tell yourself. And don't tell yourself the cruel ones. The ones that make you numb to your own troubles or that make you a monster to be around. Let me give you an example. 
in my country, our great founding mythologies come from the Thousand and One Arabian Nights, which begins with a tragic frame story. Uh, a king, Shariar, sees his wife betray him with another and reacts with monstrosity. He decides that all women are to blame. See the story he's telling himself already. And so after he slaughters his queen, he begins a nightly ritual of marrying a new woman every night, only to murder them in the morning. He justified his evil by telling himself this story. And clearly, he's not our hero. Our hero is Sherazad, the great storyteller of my culture. Sherazad was a noblewoman, the daughter of the king's own vizier, and protected from his evil campaign. Sherazad could have gone on with her whole life, completely immune to the pain of the women around her. But instead, she put herself in extreme danger by offering herself one night. This is the premise of the Arabian Nights, Scheherazade sitting with a murderous king, telling him the story. But our hero is so cunning, and she tells the stories in such a way that each morning, the king is enraptured by what will happen next and stays her execution for one more day. She does this for a thousand and one nights. Now, this is a very old story. It's passed down orally. There's no formal ending to the thousand and one nights. We never hear the part that I was always most fascinated by, which is, whatever happened? What, did she have to stay married after the Thousand and One Nights? Is, is, did they uh, just go on as a couple? What, what had she achieved after all of those tales? I recently wrote a book called Everything Sad is Untrue, and I was trying to grapple with all these ideas at once. The plot is the one I told you about my mother bringing us through refugee camps to the United States. The journey is both hers and my own as we tried to piece together our memories of a home we lost in Iran, the family, the history. The heart is a boy wondering what he will become if he can't become a shepherd like his beloved grandfather. What stories could he tell that would redeem the broken threads of his patchwork family history? And one theme in this book was what happened to Sherazad. What happened to her uh, who found herself in the clutches of an audience that had used the power of stories to deny her humanity? And why did she do it? In one passage, he addresses the idea head on. He says, dear reader, you have to understand the point of all these stories, what they add up to. Scheherazade was trying to make the king human again. She made him love life by showing him all of it, the funny parts about poop, the dangerous parts with demons, even the boring parts about what makes marriages last. Little by little, he began to feel the joy and sadness of others. He became less immune, less numb because of the stories. That is what makes stories so daggum powerful. To save the lives of entire countries of women, to make friends of our enemies and even the kids we disdain. It is easy to imagine God as a critical audience, isn't it? He is watching. His standard is nothing short of perfect truth. It is easy to imagine him observing the profanity of our lives and thoughts, deeply unamused. But isn't it a revelation to know he is the only audience who reads you exactly. And he looks at what he sees and he loves it. He wrote all the ticklish corners of your heart and he laughs at all the jokes. You can laugh together at this silly experience. He is always there to talk to. He is so funny. He's laughing or crying with you and for you. Dear listeners, I hope you will never use stories to make yourself numb to the pain of others or your own. I hope you will always use them as Jesus did to give others, even others you would otherwise despise, their shared humanity and dignity. 
You will have this power and this burden for the rest of your lives. But that's okay. So do I. So do we all. It's another thing we share. Now isn't that a good story? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for writing the story of creation and salvation. Make us all tellers of your great and good news and help us never to tell the stories to ourselves that make enemies of our own minds.